We're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, continuing our series here on embodied Christianity. We're going to be moving around the New Testament a little bit. <clears throat> All right, so Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. <clears throat> he says this. We're jumping in in kind of the middle of one of his arguments. He's quoting them. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. All right, well, I had a clip here, but I'm not going to be able to play the audio. So you can just imagine, if any of you have seen Talladega Nights, the ballad of Ricky Bobby, you might be able to imagine this better than I can do it. I'm not a stand-up comic. But one of the most memorable scenes in this movie, and there are many, uh, is a scene in which Ricky has just won a race, and the man is fast. And he comes up, and he doesn't realize they're going to have him do an interview after the race. And he comes up to the microphone, and all of his managers are going, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And Ricky comes up, and he goes, yeah, car fast. Uh, it's it like I was on a Spaceship, and, and then his hands just start coming up, and, and the the interviewer's like, "No, no, you got to, you got to get." And he goes, "And it, I was just, uh, it was like I was a little kid." And, and they're just like pulling, and he's like, and then he just got his hands up here, and he's talking, and everybody's going, "What is he doing?" And he's just kind of like contorting, and he goes, I, "I'm not sure what to do with my hands." And you can just imagine, I mean, Will Ferrell just knocks it out, right? But that line, I'm not quite sure what to do with my hands, really gets to the bottom of this series on embodied Christianity. What as Christians do we do with our hands? It seems like a lot of times we're able to go fast. We're able to do whatever it is we do well. We're even able to understand it all up here. But when we stand before the microphone of the world, the realization is, we don't really know what to do with our hands. And the world is watching. And even if 
We can get really good at talking the talk. The question is, what are we going to do with our hands? The Corinthian church has struggled with embodying their Christianity. They've learned the language. They've come to the to this house churches. They've come and they've met with the Jewish Christians and they're learning together and they're understanding it up here as we talked about last week. They're getting the head smarts of Christianity. But the question is, I'm not really sure what to do with my hands. Many of us can identify with this because we have been taught, some of us, every Sunday since we were little kids. But when a big decision comes about, when somebody comes up to us, when something needs to happen, when we're in that place, in that moment, where we need to act like a Christian, we feel either afraid or unclear. Or maybe we're not even aware of our passivity as things just fly by us. So we need to ask this question. We need to ask, what do we do with our hands? Because what we do with our hands has everything to do with who we believe we are and what we believe that means. So what we will find today is that as Christians, that it is less a question of who I am. That's the question we're asking in society day in, day out is, who I am. That's the identity question. But the question, but the actual question for Christians is whose I am. To whom do I belong? Not who I am, but whose I am. And this is unpopular on like a whole host of levels. And it's personally offensive to us as Americans because we are our own people. Like, I am my own man. I am my own woman. Like, I am independent. I have freedom. And so, it, you aren't being authentic with your faith unless you are on some level personally offended when you encounter Jesus. Because he is taking away that complete and utter independence. That I am an island. I am a rock. And so we'll see when we open our Bibles that 1 Corinthians is actually a response to a previous letter. And somewhere in that previous letter or when Paul was ministering to this church when he was with them for a year and a half before he moved on, they were saying things like this. I have the right to do anything. He's quoting them. I have the right to do anything. They say food is for the stomach and the stomach's for food and God will destroy them both. It's sort of inconsequential what's going to happen to the body. And Paul is saying he's correcting them. And he's saying, yes, you do have the right to do anything, but not everything is good to do. You do have the right to do anything, but you shouldn't be mastered or enslaved to anything. And then if we jump down to the end, because sometimes with Paul you have to work from his conclusions backward to see how he's building his argument. He says this in verse 19, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. 
Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We talked last week a lot about the true purpose of humanity. We have our purpose. We have what we think we're after in our life. I am supposed to get married, have kids, build up a retirement fund and a college fund, move in my career track to wherever that track's supposed to go, retire at an early age so I can go and tackle my bucket list. This is my purpose for my life. This is the purpose culture has told me is the best way to live. It's the good life. This is how you do it. This is how you play the game. But God has a true purpose for us. And in that true purpose is true happiness. Because I don't know how many people you've talked to. But if people are truly honest when they get to the end of their lives. A lot of them are full of regrets. And they say I don't know why I was working the whole time. At a job I didn't really care about. To get here now my body's falling. Like there's this whole realization that it wasn't everything it was cracked up to be. So the question is, what is our true purpose? And that means we need to ask the question, what is our body for? Yes, Christianity liberates us, and we have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Now, when we talk about whose I am, when we talk about that ownership, are we talking about like a slave owner and we're a slave? I mean, Paul says, I am enslaved to Christ. So is that the relationship we're talking about? Is a slave owner. And Paul says it. Is that what it is? Are we just taken and forced to do manual labor and maybe mistreated like anything we think of, of what a slave owner does? Or is Paul using that to make a point because lots of other places, he's using different metaphors on how we relate to God and who he is. God is a father. And here, he's using a relationship of ownership of us by Christ by saying that we were bought at a price and what? We are united with the Lord in one spirit as if we are one flesh. Going back to Genesis 2.24, looking at man and women are to be together, they are to be one flesh. So Paul here is using an example of whose I am as a marriage rather than a slave owner. Now if I say, Megan is mine, you might go, uh, John's acting a little chauvinistic and possessive, right? Megan's mine, right? But if Megan says, I am John's, now it totally changes. Same relationship, we're admitting the same thing, but Megan is saying, I'm John's. I'm protected by him. I'm happy to be in his, quote, possession, right? I am happy to be one with him. I'm happy to be united. I am his. He is mine, so whose am I? I'm Megan's. Whose am I, Megan says? I'm John. Who are we, we say? I am Christ. Because I was bought with a price. So instead of it feeling like I'm under God's thumb, I'm enslaved against my will, I don't get to live the life I truly want to live, Saying, I am Christ, becomes a statement of comfort, empowerment. It anchors us in place. 
it gives us a sense of lifelong partnership and companionship. And it states a secure place of love. I am loved. And Paul is saying that when we say I am Christ, there is some fundamental shift in our identity. We give up the center. We give up the center. We say, until now, my whole life had been structured where I'm in the middle of everything. Everything relates to me, and I respond as if everything is about me. But when I say I am Christ, I willingly give up the center. So to be embodied in our Christianity, to know the true purpose for our bodies and to act out of that, to have the answer to what do I do with my hands begins with admitting that Jesus is first our Savior, that he bought us with a price. And then we work that back into Paul's encouragements throughout the letter. What he's saying to do now makes sense because we have total security and we are completely loved. And even we will be raised from the dead by the king of the universe, who is a king even over Caesar. That's the level of power. Imagine being a Corinthian in Rome. Caesar held absolute power. And when the Christians are using this term Lord, they're, they're saying, hey, that's a term that's used for the current ruler of the world. Our Lord is Lord of Lords. And he loves you unconditionally. So now Paul can say, here's what you should do with your bodies. Yes, are you free to do anything? You sure are. But remember that you're in a relationship and not everything is beneficial. And some things, verse 12, second half of verse 12, will master you. They will actually pull you and tempt you out of the relationship that you're meant for and that you're secure in. They will fool you. So what Paul is doing here is he's giving us what people that are shrouded in academia call theological anthropology. He's giving us God's view of humanity. God's view of humanity. So that we can understand our own humanity in relationship to who God says we are. Now, that's really, really important because when we understand who we are as God says we are, we have a new narrative for our life. We have a new story. It comes from a totally different perspective. We have given up the center and we allow, as I've heard said, God to narrate our life. Okay, so now that we have that basic paradigm in place, we have to now dive into what is actually going on in this letter. If some crazy stuff comes up in this letter. You're like, I didn't come on Sunday on July 10th to be hearing about prostitution, John. Like, I don't know why you picked this text. So I have to explain the Corinthian dilemma with a little bit of context. Okay, first of all, Corinth was 
a really important city in the way a lot of modern cities are really important. It was cosmopolitan, it was highly mobile, it was intellectual, it was materially wealthy. It, was, it laid on like an isthmus, which is just a place where they'd actually dug a canal so trade ships could travel through and cross over this big landmass and get where they were going much faster. Think of it like the Panama Canal in ancient Greece. So this is a place everybody's traveling through here. It's a port city. And as far as we can tell and scholars can tell from studying Corinth, that in this city, individual desire was king. One scholar wrote that the ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual. It's like the Wild West. It's like modern America. It's like living in any city. Corinth was home to those seeking to taste every pleasure, make every dollar, win every race. It's a person who had no superior and no law, but his own desires. So Corinth is a place where people fancied themselves to be in the center. There was a deep preoccupation with my life, who I'm becoming, what I'm getting or not getting, and where I'm going. And the situation happening with these people is disputed, actually. What is going on here is disputed a lot. Because, as as I heard one guy say, he, he said, when we read the New Testament letters, we have to remember we're reading somebody else's mail. Now, a lot of us are raised in like Bible teaching where it's like, I know this verse. Have you ever heard it? It's in the Bible. I believe it. That settles it, right? Like, You can just take any phrase out of any context and apply it to anything, right? Paul, this Timothy Gombus says, we are reading somebody else's mail. If you want to know what's going on, you got to understand as much as we can about the context. And we're working with just a few different letters and some archaeological records and some other letters to like, we're piecing it together. But we can see this. We can see that Corinth is very relatable, but it's somewhere wholly unlike us too. We would say, what on earth? The Christians are are going and engaging with prostitutes. What's going on? Paul did not do a very good job. But we have to understand the culture. And the most convincing, I'll boil it down, the most convincing explanation of what's going on in this letter is yes, some people in the church were engaging with prostitutes. That's clear from verses 15 and 16. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, quoting Genesis, the two will become one flesh. Okay, so it's clear that this is going on. He's writing to address this issue. And it's also clear that these people who were doing this in the church were making excuses. By the way, they're definitely men. These men were making excuses. I have the right to do anything. I thought you said grace abounds, Christian liberty. I have the right to do anything. The question is, why? Why were they doing these things and why were they making excuses? Is it just that they just couldn't help themselves? Or was there more going on? And I think what we have to understand is that Roman Roman religion was deeply embedded in Corinth. 
it was something that every Roman just did, okay? It wasn't even thought about. It was just assumed that this is the way you would be in this culture. So to get any business done, one would find themselves at various temples for various gods, eating at feasts for the sake of blessings on crops or the seas and the weather or a family's fertility. Maybe they're hoping to have a boy. Your boss is hoping to have a boy. He says, come with me to the feast at this temple. You're a good employee. You're going to go, right? And then what happens And we know this because in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, Paul talks about food being offered to idols. And he goes into this. He says, can you, can't you? This is the question. The Jews are probably getting all up in arms because the Gentiles are going to these feasts with their bosses and eating this food sacrifice to idols. Are they bad or good? Do we get them out of the church? Because the Jews were always trying to figure out how to get the Gentiles out of the church. But something that happened after the feast seemed common enough is that at some of these feasts, they brought out prostitutes after the feast. Now, I imagine this was a commercial enterprise. The temple's trying to make more money, right? They're trying to fund their enterprise. And this particular boss of this particular business is loyal to this temple because he wants to have a boy, right? Or he wants his crops to do well. Brings all his people in here. And what is the social pressure going to be? It's going to be to drink like you're in an old boys club. And then they bring out the prostitutes after. So what's happening here is that to get in with the businessmen. To get in and be commercially successful and make their business deals. Lots of Gentile Christians would have a lot of social pressure to be culturally successful, to get the, quote, retirement fund and the college fund figured out for their families to show up at the temples and honor their colleagues and do whatever the men did. That's what's going on. So now, perhaps, we can relate a little more of the church at Corinth. We can't just finger point say, I would never, ever do that. We have to put ourselves in their shoes and say, this is literally the cultural norm and ask ourselves, what are the cultural norms and pressures that we make concessions for in being like Jesus? Because we need to honor our families, our bosses, our workplaces. We need to get ahead in our career trajectory. Now we can step into the Corinthian shoes a little bit better. So this is the central problem. And you could say, well, this is still basically a central problem about sex. But it's about way more than sex. It's about the human body in general. And how it's, our use of it can't be compartmentalized away from our new life in Christ. To be embodied as a Christian is a whole practice. Everything we do with our bodies, everything we do with our lives, everything we do Monday through Saturday is part of being a Christian. And since our spiritual reality is totally reformatted, purpose and all, by Jesus, then it has an effect on everything about how we handle our body's desire.
But the Gentiles are saying, I can't give up on this. This is, I'm completely embedded in this world and in this city. And Paul is saying that actually you need a new love to that and to embrace the city with your whole body for the sake of God and for the love of every person. You need to rethink this. Because even though what you're doing is totally socially normal, it's actually completely serving an unjust culture. It's demeaning to women. It plays into a chauvinistic culture of commerce. It's witnessing to other potential Christians that Christianity is basically just another option because what else is changing? They're still living their life in every way like a Gentile, like a Roman citizen, except now they go to this thing on Sunday. And Paul is saying, you are going to have to change the habits, how you treat your body, what, what perhaps you, who you hang out with or what you do or why you do it. And you're going to have to step up. Now, Paul is not, by the way, saying become like separatists. No longer go to the poker match. No longer hang out with your work colleagues. Because later in 1 Corinthians 8, that's exactly what he addresses. He says, uh, food sacrifice to idols? Depends. Why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you've been invited and you want to honor your work colleagues and witness to them the love of Jesus? Or are you doing it because... You are a coward, and you can't figure out how to actually step up and do what you believe in. He's saying, and in some ways, what we're doing with our bodies then is soul training. We're training our souls by how we interact with other people, by the decisions we make by the restraints perhaps we use, by the things we maybe opt out of and don't do anymore, by the way that we see ourselves in relation to Christ is soul training. When Jesus comes, his gospel reveals everything we couldn't see before. And he reveals the nature of the body itself. And he says, it's no longer disposable. This was the view, by the way, of the Romans was you just like the platonic view was you just live and then your body is kind of inconsequential and your soul is what really matters. And Paul is saying, no, they're actually integrated and connected. And the life you live out in this body is not just training on like training wheels on how to run the body so that you can run it better in heaven. It's actually your body is there to help you train your soul to love Jesus. He's not saying sex is bad because he's actually saying later, all over this letter he talks about sex, by the way, and he says it's for marriage. It's for marriage because then you actually train your soul. Otherwise, you just satisfy a hunger. It's just like what the Corinthians said, right? Uh, The food for the stomach and the stomach for food, right? Like my body's here to be satisfied. It's not really my fault. It just needs it. So I'm just going to like do what my body has for. When I'm hungry, I eat. When I want to have sex, I have sex. That's the logic that they're using. And Paul's saying, no. He's saying, actually, 
when you realize what humans are for and their true purpose and how the body plays into this, you are now soul training yourself for how to use your body in community. You have to give up the center and center somebody else. In marriage, we give ourselves up and we center our spouse. In Christianity, we give ourselves out of the center and we center Christ. And what that does is that actually centers the Christian community. When we center Christ and remove ourselves from the center, we are actually centering everybody that Christ is united with at the same time. It's kind of a paradox, and we'll get into that. But what's happening here, when Paul actually gets his way, if people were to do what Paul said, you would have a culture within the church that is now radically countercultural, that is now highly appealing to women. Think of former prostitutes that would come into the Christian church and see that these guys aren't like the other guys at the temple. These guys are trustworthy in like a really weird way that doesn't make any sense because this is not how our culture operates. That the church actually becomes the place of shalom, the place of peace. So Paul is challenging this whole idea of mine. And he's saying, all of it is Christ. All of it is Christ. And then he says, I'm writing this letter. Paul doesn't write any letter to one person. He's writing it to the whole church. He says, you are all members of the body. Not just me, John, or you, Riley, or you, Megan, or you, Noah. We are all members. We are all equally members. So when I step out of the center, it's no longer mine, but it's also no longer yours. This is the crazy thing about the beloved community of the church is when I say I'm going to step out of the center, Paul's writing out to everyone in the church. What happens if we all universally step out of the center? There's an equality. There's not really a hierarchy anymore. Unless one person says, oh, I'm still in the center. And that's what happens in church because we're sinners and we can't do this very well. And so what we do is we all try and help each other. And we say, no, 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 get back out of the center. And you'll see that it works when everyone's not in the center. It actually all works. Because we see that there's a mutual belonging. So the Christian life, and here's a funny thing. You might say, well, John's just telling me I need to not think about myself. And, but the reality is I'm lonely and I'm sad a lot. I'm depressed and I feel like everybody's telling me I can't have what I want. And so where's the fulfillment in Christianity? I don't get where the fulfillment is. A lot of us do this as Christians. I grew up thinking that this was Christianity. Is like the point is not about you, John. You're not supposed to be fulfilled. Go serve people. It'll work out eventually. That's kind of the brass tacks message that a lot of us get. No, Paul is saying something totally different. He's saying your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now to explain this well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to walk you quick through the life of Jesus. Two points, just two points in the life of Jesus. The first is his baptism. Okay? When his baptism happens, what happens? A few different stories of it. Essentially, the heavens part. The presence of God descends on Jesus as a dove or whatever. 
and a voice speaks from heaven, you are my beloved son in who I am well pleased. All sorts of Old Testament stuff's being fulfilled right in that moment. Anytime God's presence appears from the heavens, it happens over Sinai, it happens over the temple on Mount Zion. God is bringing his presence from heaven to earth together, and that is a temple site. Happens at the tabernacle, his presence dwells over the tabernacle in Exodus. Anytime that's happening, it's a temple site. What's happening is Jesus is being templed. He's becoming a temple in that moment. And what's happening in the temple moment? Jesus is being defined as the Messiah, the Son. That's what that means. The divine Son. And he's being crowned prince or king, we could say. He's given authority and power altogether in his belovedness. So you can't tease, we like to separate all this stuff, you can't tease this stuff apart. He's not like given power and authority separate from any, it's all together. The presence of God is filling him with a complete sense of whole belovedness. I am loved. Nothing can touch me. Nothing can touch me. I am, my body is a temple because the presence of God has descended into me and dwells within me. So the first half of like the book of Mark, for instance, Jesus is acting out of this beloved king identity and he is going all around practicing his kingship. He's doing miracles, he's exercising power, he's doing all of this stuff and people are going, this guy's amazing. Something's going on. Is he the Messiah? Right? And he's just taking names. Right? That's what Jesus is doing. And everybody thinks, this guy's going to be the king. He's going to take down the Roman governorship. He's going to be the Jewish ticket back to the nation we thought we were. We're going to make Israel great again. And then what happens? And then what happens? Part two of the story. Jesus is crucified. Now, how do we mash those two things together? How do those two things make sense? This is the paradox of Christianity. This is what we talked about last week with Philippians 2, 1 through 13, the Christ hymn. That actually we can't tease those two things apart. To be king, to be the temple, to be fully loved is to be willing and choosing to go on the path that may result in crucifixion. And that's what we do when we become united with Christ. So you've got to get the theory You've got to get that understanding, that overarching understanding to understand any of this stuff. Otherwise, it just feels like rules that keep me from getting what I want. And Jesus is saying, no, the only way that the Christian community can be a place of shalom is if we all step into and accept the center first. Jesus is centered by God. God centers us. He says, you're it, man. You're my son. You're my daughter. My whole inheritance is for you. You're right there in the center. I put you up on the table. I put the lights on. I say, everybody look at Arthur. He's my guy. And then, as a result of all of that, the true purpose of us is to go, I don't even need to be on the table anymore. I get off. I get out of the light. I don't need it because I got it. Who else wants to get up there? Who else can I put up there? Who else can I get into here so that you can feel it too? And that's what the church does. Because Philippians 2 puts it this way. When Paul recites the Christ hymn, he is saying all of this in a, in a nutshell. He's saying, 
Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in the heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now that we understand what's going on when he says that, we can understand what he said right before it. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul is all about teaching one anothering. That is his theological anthropology, that we are to be one anothering. That's what we do as Christians. So we've got to get away from this worm theology, this idea that we're all worms. Original sin, you're bad. You're born bad. If you're left to your own device, you're just going to be awful. You, you know what? The world would be better without you. That's sometimes, and that's how a lot of people around us are going to think we think of them and how we think of humans. But no, humans are incredible. Humans are amazing. They make huge advances. They build incredible societies. They can do what no other animal can do. We are something incredibly special. And when we see the Christian story in this way, we can speak into people with so much more dignity. And that's what I want to look at next. Second story, and then I'm out. Second story is from a guy, uh, so I, I borrowed this from a writer named J. Randall Wallace, who was looking at the Christ hymn, and he found this man named Miles Horton. Looks kind of crazy, doesn't he? Looks like a crazy guy on a cliff. This is Miles Horton. He was raised a Christian. He was considered by some to be a radical. Certainly looks like it right there. But he believed that identity is shaped by context. Identity is shaped by context. Wallace writes about him. He says, he says this. He says that Miles Horton worked in rural communities in Tennessee, in the Appalachia area. <clears throat> he grew up poor in western Tennessee in 1915 to good Presbyterian parents. And he began to work at at-risk communities. And, these, and he says this about at-risk communities. At-risk communities embody the most damaging aspects of poverty, such as poverty of motivation. So this isn't just money poverty. You have to understand that most of us, some of us here may have experiences growing up in poverty. Most of us, as I know you now, aren't living in poverty. So you have to understand that poverty affects way more. It's not just a money thing. It affects your whole identity. And he says they have poverty of motivation or initiative. They have poverty of morality, poverty of hope, poverty of opportunity, poverty of role models. The list goes on and on. Miles Horton realized this. And from a young age, he also grew up in poor he says, my mother and my father, from my mother and my father, I learned the idea of service and the value of education. They taught me that by their actions that you are supposed to serve your fellow men. You're supposed to do something worthwhile with your life. And education is meant to help you to do something for others. Even when they were poor without much to eat, 
Horton's mother would share food with other families in the community. Horton never got angry that he had less food to eat because he saw how strongly his mother believed in giving to others. In 1927, he took a summer job organizing community meetings for the Presbyterian Church, encouraging participants to tell their stories. It was an excellent practice, Wallace writes, for the teaching he'd do at what he would eventually found, which we see a picture of here, called the Highlander Folk School. So it's probably because of his own God-given background with poverty, his own God-given parents who raised him in the church, his own God-given parents who lived that in an embodied way, in generosity, that he found himself steered into this place where he was given and told humans have inherent dignity and they're given it by God. And what you need to do when you address poverty is help them understand their own dignity and then get out of the way. And he's such an incredible example of that. He goes to a liberal arts college in Chicago. He goes to Union Theological Seminary. This guy can just go up if he wants to. He gets on the track to just go climb the ladder. But in this process, he learns about these folk schools and adult education. And he starts this Highlander Folk School outside of Knoxville, Tennessee in 1932. With this hallmark idea that everybody has human dignity. And I thought about it, and as, as I was reading more about this church, or at the, as at the school, I thought this is actually an image of the church, what he's doing here. He's getting people to tell their stories, to participate, to gain dignity, to be listened to, to be worthy of being listened to. Sharing resources with them to build them up and to educate them even as adults, even though they might feel they missed the boat. He wrote this, he says, probably the most important thing we do for people is to have them participate in an actual democratic experience where people are free to talk and make decisions, where there's no discrimination and where their experience is valued. If you don't value a person's experience, I don't know you can value them as a person, if you can value them as a person. So, he and a few other, another minister and another man started this church and they brought the education to the people and instilled them with value through face-to-face time as a means to help transform their identity. This sounds to me like it embodies the Christ hymn, that it embodies the shalom of the community that Paul's after. So, I'll ask you this question. Have you ever heard of Miles Horton? Has anyone here ever heard of Miles Horton? I didn't think so. Have you heard of Martin Luther King Jr.? Have you heard of Rosa Parks? These people were trained at the Highland Folk School. These people were taught that black people have dignity. These people were able to share their stories with other black people. And the civil rights leaders at the time in the 50s gathered here as a place to study with Miles Horton. And that picture of Rosa Parks is taken right before her decision to keep her seat 
on the Montgomery, Alabama bus in 1955. What do the white supremacists do? They're in charge of the power and privilege of the culture at that time. They call it a communist training school because Miles Horton was a socialist, self-proclaimed socialist. They don't want it to happen. They don't want people to have dignity because in their worldview, when you get power, you keep it and you give it to the people that are your people. Did, did, did white supremacists care about their families? I am sure they do. Do they care even? Do they even help their nephew who needs money to go to college? I'm sure they do. Okay? That's not the point. Paul said in, in the New Testament, I think Jesus says, even friends help their friends. That's not what we're getting at. That's not the program we're on here, you guys. This is what it means to practice embodied Christianity. To take our whole lives, our whole bodies, and to share in the life of Christ. To be united with him in spirit. To be a temple of the Holy Spirit. To have the center and to get out of it and to put other people in the spotlight. It's moving to me just to see his posture here, sitting Listening Here, he's in the center there, sitting below and listening. This is the posture of providing dignity and hope. I saw a woman named Jess, and her Instagram is called Salt and Gold, and she did these illustrations that perfectly illustrate. They're provocative. These are meant to provoke of Jesus washing feet. Just going to cycle through a couple of these. This is what Jesus does. Can you tell us what he's doing? Yeah, yeah. For for you, Ron, for sure. Jesus is washing Johnny Depp's feet. This is, of course, in light of the recent trial. He's washing the feet of a person holding a sign that says Roe has got to go. He's washing the feet of a man holding a pride flag. He's washing the feet of a police officer. He's washing the feet of Donald Trump. It's intentionally provocative. These are people from all sides of the spectrum. Jesus is washing all their feet. What do you do with that? It blows up our categories. It messes with our minds. Because I'm either on the right or I'm on the left. Or I think Jesus is on the right or on the left. Or I think... Jesus washes your feet. Anyone who steps into this room, I will say that to them and I know it's true. It doesn't matter who they are. They could be a murderer. Jesus washes your feet. This is the amazing thing about Christianity. And it blows our mind. It's a total paradox. It, it, I just offended people in this room. I guarantee you I offended somebody. It was kind of a little bit the point. Jesus offended a lot of people. And what it tells us is if Jesus washing everybody on the planet's feet offends me, then I need a new narrative for my life. And so this is my, this is my request to us. I'm going to do it with you. I would love to hear if any of you do this this week. This is a journal assignment for you. And it's not an individual assignment, it's a communal assignment. That means it's not about you. 
we're going to give up the center of our story as a church. Or if you're just new here, the story that you have of your church life. You're going to give up the center of that community for a minute. And you're going to put Jesus in the center, washing all of our feet. Both protecting and disrupting us. When I see these images, he's both protecting and disrupting every one of these people. He's both loving and in some way chastising them by the action of foot washing. What, how would God tell our story, citizen story, washing all of our feet together? What would that look like? What would he say about our story? And this is the requirement. If we get ourselves out of the center and we know who Jesus is and how he practices new beginnings, we have to ask, how would he tell it? The requirement is you have to be loved in this story. We all have to be loved in the story he tells. Because that's a requirement. We all have to be being prepared to love in the story of our church. In the history of this church, all the things that have happened in it, Jesus is preparing you to love. So that needs to be part of the story. And then you can have truths to which you can filter the facts. And you can, it's an imaginative exercise. We don't know how God narrates our story. We have to imagine it right away. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you challenge us. Pray that we would be able to get beyond the scene. I pray that we would take the things that offend our sensibilities. I pray that we would take the things that are provocative and we would sit with them before you. And we would ask Jesus, maybe those things, yes, but my life, I don't know. Tell me what it is in your washing of my feet that you're asking me to let go of. Tell me in my washing of my feet where I'm not accepting your love and I need to just feel that so deep because I can't go serve you until I'm loved by you. Heal us. In your name, amen.